This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. So I have three broad categories of books in my life. There are some books that come into my life and sometimes they're sent to me or sometimes I've picked them up from the bookstore or wherever it might be or the library. And I look through and I go, this is not a very good book. <laughs> and you know what? There's quite a lot of those out in the world where somebody's taken a half-baked idea, which should be maybe a podcast or a blog post and kind of stretched it over 240 pages. And I'm like, wow, this is <laughs> this is killing me to, to read this. And I don't actually read it. I give it away or I return it to the library. <laughs> there are other books in my life. And I read them and I go, you know what, that's a pretty good book. It's got some good ideas. Um, It's a bit of an effort to read it, but, you know, I've found the value in it. You know, if I look at my bookshelf now, like Immunity to Change is one of those by Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy. There's a really powerful idea at the heart of that book. Mm. It's just it's written by academics, so it's a bit hard to kind of wade your way, (laughs) way through it. And then there is this elite type of book and these are few and far between but these are the precious ones to me the ones that i keep on my shelf the ones i keep coming back to the ones that i mention over and over again and they fuse a powerful idea with a distinct voice a kind of real tone you get a sense of you know who the author is and a design a sense of real elegance and difference so that you enter the book and you enter an experience and you just walk away go at least i walk away going Oh, that's a book I wish I'd written. And my guest today is the author of books like that. I have pretty much all of his books on my top shelf. So let me introduce you to Dr. Alexander Osterwalder. He is one of the world's most influential innovation experts. He's a leading author, entrepreneur, and in-demand speaker. I've sat in the audience many times watching Alex whose work has really changed the way established companies do business and how new ventures get started. He is ranked number four, so good, of the top 50 management thinkers worldwide. And he is known for simplifying the strategy development process and turning complex concepts into digestible visual models. Together with his uh, colleague and, and former thesis advisor, I think, Yves Pigneur, he invented the business model canvas, which is what really shot him to fame. The Value Proposition Canvas and the Business Portfolio Map. These are practical tools that are trusted by millions, and really, it, it really is millions of people and business practitioners from leading global companies. His company is Strategizer, and Alex is based in Switzerland, but lots of Strategizer is actually here in Toronto with me, and I've got to know some of the folks there. And they provide online courses, applications, and tech-enabled services to help organizations systematically and effectively manage strategy, growth, transformation, and innovation. And his books include the international bestsellers, Business Model Generation. That's the book I picked up and went, damn it. (laughs) This is the book I wish I had written. And a number of others, including just launched, and this is a wonderful book, The Invincible Company, which is also a fabulous name for a book, The Invincible Company. And Alex is a friend of mine as well. So Alex, it's so nice to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. And after all those nice words, I think I just shouldn't say anything anymore. Because I can't live up to the expectation. Yeah, you're right. It's all downhill from here. But so, so that's always the case with me. I start strong and fade fast. Um, 
you know, I, I love the title of the Invincible Company. I mean, your other your other titles are more pragmatic. The Invincible Company has this aspiration to it, which is like, oh yeah, I want an Invincible Company. Mm-hmm. There, there's so much baked into that title. I think is so powerful. But I want to go to the opposite of that, and I want to ask you why, in your experience, and you've seen a lot. Are so many companies invincible? <laughs> You're not <laughs> invincible. Why are they? Why are they brittle? Why do so many companies break? Do you think? I think um, you know there are a couple of things you know, and, and based on you know Clay Christensen's thinking of of uh, you know disruptive innovation, it's because they're so good at what they're doing, <laughs> which sounds right. paradoxical, right? But they're so focused on execution, on managing the existing, that they become extremely vulnerable to disruption. And, you know, probably we're just living through the biggest disruption of the last <laughs> right. you know, 150, 200 years. So though this is now affecting everybody. But those companies that, you know, prepared themselves for disruption, obviously nobody's prepared for this kind of crazy big disruption. Mm. Those companies that are pre- prepared for disruption, you know what they have in common? They constantly reinvent themselves. So they don't believe they are invincible. So funny enough, you know, we, we chose that title because no company can be invincible. The only right. thing you can do is constantly reinvent yourself. You need to have an attitude of day one. And companies that are brittle, right, invincible, they don't have this attitude of day one. They get arrogant to a certain extent. And you could say lazy if you want, and that, that sounds a bit easy, you know, to say from a comfortable chair, oh, you know, you de- dear CEO, you're not doing your job. No, they're actually doing their job really well of managing the existing. But what they're right. not doing is being prepared or preparing themselves for disruption. That is the main task of leadership today, to constantly reinvent your organization. You talk about a day one attitude, and I think that's a phrase that Jeff Bezos has kind of made known and kind of as the essence of how he thinks about running Amazon. For those of us who haven't heard that before, what what does a day one attitude actually mean? I'll I'll tell you a little story, you know, about what it doesn't mean. So I was uh, invited to work with uh, the leadership, the board and the CEO of uh, one of the biggest Thai companies in Thailand. So we were in Bangkok, you know, on the way with the car to the meeting. And my host was proudly saying, hey, look, this is our headquarters. You know, it's called uh, 100 years or 150 years. I don't remember, 100 years uh, because they've been around for so long. And that's a great achievement, right? If you built a company that can last for over 100 years. But then I told them this story and said, well, you know, that's great. That's wonderful, but you got to be careful because at Amazon, they right. actually call their headquarters day one. And when, <laughs> what Jeff Bezos means with that is, you know, however successful you are, you need to keep this attitude of the first day. We don't know what's going to work. We could die. We're just a, a startup that could go out of business. So that obsession is really strong at Amazon, you know, almost overly obsessive that Amazon can die. And Jeff Bezos tells his shareholders, you know, it's only a question of time. Amazon is going to die. So think of it. The company that is disrupting most industries believe Mm -hmm. they're going to die. And that is exactly why they're able to disrupt industries, because they constantly reinvent themselves. They constantly explore. But here's the secret. While they are world class at managing the existing. So that is the trick, right? You have to be world class at what you do and manage and at the same time, be world class 
at exploration. Those are two different skill sets. Those are two different cultures. Those are, you know, two different professions under the same roof. You need world-class managers, but in addition, in order not to get disrupted, you need world-class explorers. And most companies lack, you know, the conditions for world-class explorers to succeed. I actually think every company has the talent, but they don't have the system to let explorers thrive. So that's a, that's a really powerful insight, which is it's actually not so much a lack of the recruitment failure. Exactly. It's that you haven't set up systems that allow those two cultures to exist. Let me, let me go to the culture piece first. Is it actually possible to have two, I'm going to say, contradictory cultures coexisting under the same metaphorical roof? I do think so. And that's exactly what we see in what we call invincible companies. They are able, you know, academics have been writing about this for a long time. We call this the ambidextrous organization. Right. But given that, you know, I left academia a long time ago, <laughs> I try to make things extremely practical. So in our books, we, we write about the ambidextrous organization, but we're really, really obsessed by helping companies actually put this in place. And it turns out it's not that hard. You know, if you follow a couple of principles in the design of your company, you know, leadership support, organizational structure, and the innovation practice you have, it's relatively easy to do. And the reason, you know, I can say that with confidence is because we're seeing companies that do it. Amazon, obviously, the best known for that. Yeah. And Jeff Bezos openly talks about how they do that, how they're world-class at managing both cultures under the same roof. But there's an, a, a case that is, is even more interesting, I believe, and not as well known, uh, not as widely known, and it's called Ping An. It's a Chinese company. They uh, you know, were traditionally a, a banking and uh, insurance conglomerate. And 10 years ago, the founder, Peter Ma, believed that they would get disrupted by technology. He said, banking and insurance, as we know it, will die. We need to become a technology player we need to create an ambidextrous organization. So while we're managing our conglomerate, insurance and banking, we need to start to play as a tech player in different arenas like the health right. sector. So in less than 10 years, they built this. In less than 10 years, they went from the top 400 companies to the top 30 companies of the world. So it is possible to do. And now I believe it's mainly a leadership commitment thing to start doing this. As long as the leadership is not committed to creating these two cultures, it's never going to happen. So there is a top-down component in addition to the bottom-up component. There's a huge responsibility of leadership to start to understand this and then to put it in place. That willingness, maybe even to a certain extent, that knowledge doesn't exist yet in many, many leadership yeah. cycles. Alex, I think about, you know, my own very, very, very small companies and the weight of legacy is immense. <laughs> you know, it's like a black hole. And like, I, you know, we're, we're small, like, you know, Box of Crayons, 20 people, MBS.Works, three people. And MBS.Works, three people been around for less than a year. We already have outdated systems that I can't get rid of. <laughs> like, how... And so if you're playing at anything at a larger scale, and I know that's where Strategizer does most of its work, how do you unshackle people from these legacy yeah. systems, which must be both yeah. uh, technology but also just mental frameworks to allow them to build the structures yeah. that allow this innovation and this reinvention to flourish? 
Yeah, absolutely. So first I want to emphasize it is actually not a question of size, right? And a person, a company of one needs the same attitude of reinvention than a company of like Amazon with close to 1 million. It's exactly the same attitude and then obviously mm -hmm. different structures. And I think it first starts with the leadership. And, you know, what I like to say is this, do the Rita McGrath test to see if your company is going to innovate. And the Rita McGrath test, you know, our, our friend from Columbia yeah. is school. Who's actually been a guest on the podcast as well. So um, people can listen to that episode of Rita and me talking. So, so she says, look at the CEO's agenda, like literally the, the agenda, and then look at how many hours in the day are blocked out for innovation and for, right. you know, the future, for exploration. And I believe if it's not 50%, so I'm adding this to the Rita McGrath test, if it's not 50% of his or her time, innovation will never happen in this company. Right. What I want to say with that is that you know, it doesn't have to be the CEO at Pingan. It's a co-CEO. It's Jessica Tan, who, in addition to the founder, Peter Ma, you know, takes care at the very top of innovation. Peter Ma actually does the execution. It's more focused on the existing. Uh -huh. So you need that number one symbolic value, that innovation, exploration, the, the exploration of the future really matters. Because otherwise, nobody, you know, is going to take care of the future. Everybody's going to say, oh man, I don't want to risk my career, you know, but here we focus on legacy. We manage what we have, you know, what it's not worth it to actually start scratching, you know, yeah. legacy and changing things because all I can do is kill my career. But if you see that at the very top of the organization, people are concerned with the future, with changing legacy systems, then that's a very strong, you know, symbolic uh, signal. And that's exactly why Jebesos, you know, does a couple of things <laughs> to, to create this dual culture. He says, you know, um, Amazon is the best place in the world to fail. So he gives the legitimacy for experimentation and exploration right. of new things beyond the legacy. That doesn't mean you, you, you shouldn't fail at Amazon if you're building a new warehouse because they've done that a hundred times. <laughs> right, right. So, so you got to be careful what, what that means. But that's exactly the kind of culture you want to put in place. So it has to start from the top. That's the number one thing. And then you've yeah. already unlocked a lot of potential. So I'm going to work on the assumption that all of the CEOs of the world's top 400 companies are listening to this podcast, yeah, but, but, but possibly there are other people as well. And so if I'm uh, working in an organization and I'm part of a team, maybe leading a team, and I think to myself, hey, Alex, this sounds good. We don't have Jeff Bezos leading yeah. us. We yeah. don't have anybody. You know, yeah. our, our, our leadership team is a little bit moribund. Does that mean that you're you're done, or are there things that you can do in your own sphere of influence to try and build um, a resilience and legitimacy and longevity? That's an excellent question, and I can see you're speaking from experience. You know, having seen <laughs> people suffering through this, so I would yeah. say, you know, if you if you intend to work on breakthrough innovation, but your leadership is not committed to exploration you know, don't do it. Otherwise you're killing your career, you know, change. If you're in, interested in innovation and you don't see that kind of stuff happening, change the company. Right. Now that's, that's for breakthrough innovation. Cause I believe the, the word innovation means nothing without, you know, another word with it. So there's breakthrough innovation, which is about building new business models, new growth engines. 
that requires the top to be involved because it requires so much investment from the company, you know, right. resources like brand, customers, et cetera. But then there is efficiency innovation. You can improve your everyday work and it requires the same kind of attitude, the same kind of tools and processes, and you can improve within the existing. And that, of course, you know, actually helps the company improve the core. So you can still have that innovation mindset, that growth mindset, and work from there. So there are different types of innovation. So in companies where you do not have that leadership commitment, you right. can do efficiency innovation. You can probably do sustaining innovation, which is a little bit more in, around new products and so. What you can't do is, is breakthrough innovation. So it really depends um, what kind of innovation you want to do if you can do it in a company that doesn't have top-down support. What you can do always is try to work yourself from the bottom up. So I see a lot of companies where the innovation lead actually doesn't have enough power, but is smart enough to start to find a sponsor at the board level, mm -hmm. right? to find that support, early adopters, in order to slowly transform the board and the leadership. But that's a very difficult kind of journey, very long term. Yeah. So you need to be patient. Um, but you definitely can't be naive. So I see a lot of innovators. They're passionate. They're ideological. You know, they they want yeah. to change things. And, and, and they're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're actually, you know, I'd say they're committing career suicide because yeah. there are companies you can't do some of these things and you just need to see that and then leave. Yeah. Um, I've done that. More I've, I've, I've literally done that. I, I finally... I think one of my jobs I worked at, a manager, I'm not sure they said these exact words, but this is basically what they said, which is like, Michael, why do you continue to throw yourself on landmines? And I'm like, you know what? That's actually really helpful feedback because, you know, in my enthusiasm and in my naivety, I'm like, I'm going to try and rattle trees and bang drums and wave flags. And it just meant that I was, yeah, yeah, I yeah. lost any, any influence I had, which was not much. It dropped to zero and then below zero. Yeah. And that's, that's the, I think that's something that, you know, we, we need to, when we're passionate about something, we need to also be pragmatic. Mm. I do think, you know, the situation today is very different from five years ago or 10 years ago. So I see CEOs now reaching out to strategize or myself. Just, you know, before the lockdown, I, I talked to one of the biggest uh, financial organizational institutions in Europe. And it was great to see the CEO actually admitting, oh, I don't really know how this works. I want to understand this black right. box because it was a black box to him. It's not a black box to, to those who do innovation. We actually know how this works. We know how to transform companies we know how to create another ping on but it does require leadership that admits we don't we know how to manage you know a multi-billion right. dollar company but we don't know how to do this and again i want to emphasize also for all listeners it's not a question of big or small you know i've have some friends who manage smaller companies you know between 10 and 100 million dollars same process same right. attitude same tools it's exactly the same thing at a smaller scale and i'd say it's even easier because when you have a smaller company and you're running it, you can make things move much faster. So when people say, yeah, it's big company stuff, I'd say you have no idea how hard it is to transform a big exactly. company. In exactly. small companies, you can do it very quickly, right? So things change. So part of, part of what you're talking about with the CEOs, the ones who aren't like the ones who called you up who went, I don't, I don't actually know. Part of the challenge is we get locked into a way of seeing the world. 
Yeah. And there's, um, you know, there's an investment in this is my reality <laughs> and it becomes a loop, right? Because it's like, I need this to be reality because this is the reality I understand and therefore I'm going to make it my reality even if it's not. And one of the things that you have in this new book, The Invincible Company, is a, a, a range of different business model patterns. You actually have 21 of them. And I thought that was so provocative and helpful because it helps you or it, it prompts you to realize that the business model you have is but one <laughs> and it is a pattern. It's not even original. And that's yeah. why it's working is that it's not original. It's one of the patterns that works. Can you take me through some of the ways of thinking differently about business models and those different patterns? Yeah, and and I want to start out with what you just mentioned this this idea of, you know, people being locked in to what they've done, you know, for for years or for decades. <laughs> uh, this is now changing with COVID-19. So I actually say, you know, beyond the devastating impacts of COVID-19, there are also great opportunities. Everybody is disrupted, you know, with maybe the exception of Netflix and Zoom, who are disrupted. <laughs> we disrupted in a different way, which is like we've got to quadruple our capacity tomorrow. Exactly. exactly yeah. But most most leaders now understand. Oh, we have no idea how to deal with uncertainty, so they have to build an explore mindset. They've never done that before, right? So they're mm. they're catapulted into this. But what they're also seeing, and this comes to the pattern to your question. Many companies now have to pivot. It's not enough to just create a new product. And, and you know, even that is hard in a very short time frame. So they have to pivot their entire business model. Right. And you know, what we wrote in the book for not for atomic bomb scenarios like this one, like huge disruption that affects everybody, we did write about how do you create more resilient companies and more resilient business models defensible business models, because I think that's the biggest underexplored opportunity. Most companies, they just compete on technology, product, and price. Mm -hmm. And that is, a, that is a game you can't win anymore. You know, whoever yes. goes to the shop and says, I'm going to buy a, a crappy product. You, you know, everybody wants <laughs> right. a perfect it's, product. Right? It's Red Ocean strategy, right? Red you're just, you're just fighting with everybody else. Exactly. Now, the underexplored opportunity is to not think – product or new segment, but to think superior business model that's defensible. And mm. you know, we've, we've been writing about business models for a long time. What we did see is we weren't doing it good enough, right? So when people don't do things, we always say, what did we do wrong? Not what are they <laughs> right. doing wrong? And what we noticed is we have to help people see business models as an opportunity. So we, we created two pattern libraries. So we have invent patterns. How can you build a better business model around a market opportunity. Could be a new technology, could be a new product, could be you know, a need of a customer, but you don't focus on the product. You actually ask yourself, how can I build a business model around that? And how can I build a better business model around that? So I'll give you one example. Um, a, a product that you know, many of us know, the, the younger ones, maybe not anymore, the iPod. So I've heard when, of that. <laughs> yeah, and I like those historic examples, right? So when Apple launched the iPod, Steve Jobs, you know, magically pu pulled this thing out of his pocket and he said, it's the first time we can put thousand songs in a pocket. Wow. That was hard back then. Today we can put, you know, thousand high definition movies onto, mm -hmm. an, onto a, a digital device. But back then it was hard. Everybody saw a technology innovation, which it was. What people did not see 
is that Steve Jobs applied a very powerful business model strategy. He used one of the patterns that we describe in the book, and we call that gravity creators. Those mm-hmm. are strategies that lock customers in. Because when Steve Jobs said, here you can put thousand songs into your pocket, meaning into iTunes, <laughs> into yeah. the iPod, the only strategy he had was to lock in customers. Because once you had your songs on that device, in that software, you would be way too lazy to take them out again and put them onto another device from Sony or whatever. I'm, wow. I'm, all, I'm still locked into Apple because of go. that damn iPod. There you go. Because- and it- like that, it's eh? like and it's like every time it's like, do I move to a well? I could, but oh my god, <laughs> it's a nightmare. So yeah. those, thinking about a gravity creation strategy, I would argue that's a big part of the empire that Apple has today around iPhones. It started with thousand songs in a pocket. Mm. So every company can apply that business model pattern. They can ask, how could we lock in customers in a positive way? Sometimes you find something, sometimes you don't, right? But it's one of the nine invent patterns that we came up with. So the whole idea is beyond your products and services, ask yourself, how could you create more patterns like this? Apply them to your business. And then, of course, you need to, again, keep the attitude of day one. What happened to Apple with the iPod? Spotify, right? So they got disrupted because they became lazy and arrogant to a certain extent. So Mm -hmm. Spotify doesn't require a thousand songs in a pocket. You can easily switch. So these things, you know, obviously um, go away. So you always have to reinvent your business small. That's why we, we created the patterns as an inspiration that you can go back to. So as a leader, team leader, or as a leader who is managing teams, you can always ask them, could you apply this pattern? Could you do this? We call these trigger questions to help them Build better business models because that's the opportunity. Take finance. Every value proposition looks the same in retail banking. Guess why? Because nobody is thinking business model. So that's where you want to be a leader and push your teams ahead or your startup ahead and start, you know, differentiating through defensible, better business models. That's one aspect. I love that. Yeah. Well, I actually want to ask you, will you tease us with another one of those business models? I, I mean, you yeah. talked about the gravity one. Talk about one that might be less familiar for people, you know, tantalize us. Yeah, yeah. So so I'll I'll give you first the familiar one, but the, then, you know, show you how it, you can go in the unfamiliar direction. Sure. So the second library set we have is what we call shift patterns. So you move uh. from one business model, an outmoded one, to a new one. And one of the obviously very known ones, but we describe how you can apply that, is from low tech to high tech. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'll give you that's the known one. I'll give you an, an example a Swiss company that is not very well known called Triza. They make toothbrushes, okay? They actually make a quarter billion toothbrushes every year wow. <laughs> in Switzerland, okay? Not in Asia. They manufacture <laughs> them in Switzerland. But the reason they can do that is obviously because they moved from low-tech, you know, manual manufacturing to high-tech with robots. And they actually supply, you know, uh, the toothbrushes from Colgate, et cetera, right? So there's the biggest toothbrush manufacturer on the planet. Now, that's familiar, right? Low-tech, high-tech. But here's the interesting one. It's not unidirectional. You could go from high-tech to low-tech. Think of a business model or a company that disrupted the world with Lower inferior technology. This is what comes to mind. Nintendo uh, Wii. Have you ever played with a Nintendo oh, Wii? Oh, yeah, I have. 
So yeah. when they launched it, think of it, when they launched it, the game console was inferior from a technology and performance point of view to anything at the time, Sony, mm-hmm. PlayStation 2, and Xbox. In terms of graphics and in terms of performance of the processing power. But here's what they did, okay? Low-tech strategy. They targeted an underserved market, casual gamers like yourself, like right. myself. Yeah, exactly. With fun motion control. But motion right. control playing, was an Playing option. fake tennis. Yeah. yeah. Roger Federer feel, Rafa Nadal feel, right? They, they did this with an off-the-shelf technology. What does that mean? The costs in their business model were very low. They could build a platform, a console, at very cheap cost. So think of it. Casual gamers, larger market console that is based on off-the-shelf technology, Mm. much cheaper. So with an inferior technology, they created a business that catered to a larger market, okay, and superior profits. Whoever thinks of innovation that way. So this is a shift, you know, from high-tech to low-tech, disrupting an entire industry. So that's what we try to push people towards to say, hey, there is no right or wrong business model. There is no magic business model, you know, that you need to apply to win. You have to be creative and draw on that library of patterns to come up with the best one for your situation. Alex, this has been a fantastic conversation because every conversation I have with you is a fantastic conversation. Um, There will be people who want to know more about you and about Strategizer. Where can they find you in the world? So easiest is to go to strategizer.com. We give a lot away, so we always give a quarter of every book away. We write blog posts. Tools are downloadable. Or just Google Alex Osterwalder and you'll find your way to our stuff. And again, we have a freemium model because we want people to use these tools. And then we make money from stuff we build on top, like software, technology-enabled services. So check out what we have. Uh, you know, Get the teasers, the tasters. And exactly. then if you like it, you can Fig- always get figure out uh, Alex's business model based on his business model patterns <laughs> because he's teaching you by the, what he's doing. Alex, you're awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And, you know, I want to really congratulate you on the great work you're doing as well, because spreading coaching across the world is something that you've achieved and it's incredibly important, right? And I'm learning every time from your new books, you know, <laughs> not, not you. letting my advice monster kind of <laughs> take me. So it, it reminds me of the stuff that I need to stick to as well. So thank you for that. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free, video-based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up, to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is, and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.